Hi, everybody. My name is Joel. I'm your host of the It's Nagelbush podcast, and today's discussion is on medicine. It's episode three of a cancer series, and it's going to be the final episode of this particular cancer series as we'll move on to um, other things that foster a dynamic impact. But today I wanted to get right to it. We're talking about medicine. We're talking about cancer and critical illness. We're talking about how medicine impacts the dynamic of cancer, whether it's impact on finances, the physical and mental aspect of the cost of medicine, what it does to people, the effects on the body, the effects on intimacy, on cells. I'm going to tell you a little story about um, how the medicines had an impact on me. We'll talk about some new meds. We're going to talk about medication errors, um, new research, what could be expected. And I don't see anything holding us up. So let's begin. I want to start talking immediately about um, the fundamentals of the cost of medicine, right? There is a cost to develop. There's a cost to research. There's a cost to test. There are, and when I say cost in that regard, I'm talking about cost financially. There's resources, tremendous resources that huge organizations put forth to ensure that this medicine um, altruistically has the greatest impact possible. Um, I, I, I can attest to the argument around the cost of medication and how much it costs to make and how much it costs to sell. And I, I want, I, I, I don't want to leave this discussion void of the point that medicine in the United States is very, very expensive and it's costly. And um, the impact of those costs can be debated, and we'll talk a little bit more about it soon. Um, but I want to make the point that there are examples where you can get medication, you know, the medication cocktail you need for HIV in India is the same medication cocktail you get for HIV here, yet the cost difference and disparity is tremendous. Okay, I'm making that point because the cost of the medicine here from a financial standpoint even though organizations have to develop and test and disperse, um, it's huge. And as that cost rolls down to pharmacies and their ability to disperse and have to manage facilities, um, there's a huge cost to the insurance company. There's a huge cost to hospitals, every healthcare facility. There's Walgreens and there's wholesale pharmacies and those pharmacies need the ability to produce medications at a rate that fill up assisted living facilities. I'm in South Florida, so assisted living facilities here are like on every corner and they require a lot of medications at once. Walgreens and CVS can't handle that. It's a whole nother economy. But the medicine and the cost, the financial cost is huge. For me, I can't afford the medication for my son's liver transplant or my thyroid cancer without insurance. The cost is ridiculous. I don't know how much money the pharmaceutical companies are making off of my particular medication, but I know it's tremendous. And even if it's not the medication, treatment, you know, somebody gets diagnosed with cancer. Those of you who have been diagnosed with cancer, when you get that diagnosis, it's scary. And we live in a society when, where that fear can't go from, wow, I'm just scared of dying from this disease or what the treatment's going to do to me that now I got to figure out who I'm going to talk to first. 
a medical specialist about my cancer, or a money manager. Because if you can't afford the medication, you're not going to get it. And if you can't afford insurance or high-quality insurance, you're not going to get the highest-quality medication. And if you want to argue with me about cost disparity and, 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 and the economic disparity between people with a lot of money and those without a lot of money and the quality of care they receive, I'm happy to debate that with you. But right now, let's talk about some statistics. Most cancer patients... Okay, let's do this. Cancer patients are two and a half times as likely to declare bankruptcy as healthy people. But those patients who are bankrupt are 80% more likely to die from the disease than other cancer patients. The follow-up to that is the emotional impact, the emotional cost. You get the disease, you beat the disease, but now you're going to be crushed by the debt and having to start over. Because of the cost of medication, average treatments for cost of average treatments for cancer cost about 150 grand. And, I, and I'm not—I don't mean to minimize the cost here. It's significant. It was a huge process for my radiation treatment. I needed a specific hospital room that had lead walls. I needed those walls to be. Um, covered in paper, so I didn't contaminate it. The radiation pill that I had to take, the I-131, um, was like a little miniature nuclear bomb for my body, and it only attacks certain cells. That's not something I would expect to get for 50 bucks. <laughs> you know, the treatment it has expenses. Security has to bring it up. Doctors have to come check in on me. I have to get a Geiger counter read every morning just to make sure that the cancer, the radiation is leaving my body. And then there's a cost of containing it. Cancer, I mean. Most of us have insurance, especially now with the Affordable Care Act. So you have access to care. Your insurance will absolutely cover much of the cancer's medical cost. <laughs> and with a good policy, you can end up with a bill maybe of four or $5,000 in deductibles, whatever they may be, co-pays throughout the year, covered. You know, you end up paying the money one way or another. Medicare patients will have lower deductibles, but can still be on the hook for thousands in co-pays. And this is only part of it. There's a loss of work. That has a ripple effect. Loss of work, loss of pills, you still have to get treatment. You lose your work, you lose your COBRA, lose your work, lose your insurance. The Affordable Care Act will get you care, which is outstanding, but very difficult to do um, in the middle of treatment, which makes the cost bearing a little bit more tricky, right? Because then it's tied into the stress levels of your work, which you can't really perform at your best because you're going through a fight of cancer. I mean, what's the organization supposed to do? They're trying to survive. You live, you work in a small company, you're stuck. You work in a big company you can sometimes have a little more flexibility, but what happens if your treatment plan goes on for months? I was lucky in that regard. It was six months from surgery to end of radiation treatment. And then I had to get used to the meds. <laughs> but if treatment goes on for nine months, A lot of people can end up with ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars of debt from that. 
And it's not the physician's fault. The hospitals have to pay what the insurance companies set the rates at. They buy medicine from pharmaceutical companies, and you have to pay the price. I would have liked to have seen more of the cost of medicine in terms its financial cost of medicine to patients in the Affordable Care Act, but um you know, reform is reform and it, it takes a little while. Because medication as much as it costs, treatments as much as they cost, um it's still not perfect. You know, there's a, 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 you know, I'll give you an, excuse me, a good example of an expensive um, cancer treatment, right? There's a, um, a cancer therapy that costs about 60000 a month. Okay. And that cost has tripled from the 10,000 it was 10 years ago. Even though, and this is a specific um, medicine that goes in, it, it helps, um, uh, they consider it like dripping gold into a person's veins. It's just really good for um, helping patients survive chemo and, and, and um, cancer, but the price doubling while demand increases shows a calculated approach to making money in business. Absent the any empathetic inclusion of patient care. They're just in it to make money. And the challenge is they should, it's their business. They can. But the impact of that can be catastrophic on a family. For me, my fight with cancer was at a young, I was 28. So um, I wasn't going to be riddled with debt forever. But people who are um, 65, 75, 85 and have a huge debt load from cancer, um, it's difficult to overcome. And my feeling is that society and resources should help that. There are certainly ways to do it. Right? And ultimately, this is going to impact these high costs of medicine. They impact senior citizens. And then that debt is slapped down another generation. Or the debt gets written off and the hospital has to write it off. And then all of a sudden, every other cost of medicine increases. It has a ripple effect. It's just part of it. The other side of it is that there are millions of people injured. Injured. <laughs> there are millions of people injured a year. A little over a million. For medication errors. Now, this isn't... The, um, there's no blame here okay Th these medical errors these medication errors um can be found in the national coordinating council for medical errors and reporting um you can find these the data in the nih um and and it's regards to the errors that we're talking about are regards to either professional patient consumers um professional practice you know um or or at home you have 10 medications in your house to take. You have to take three in the morning, four in the afternoon. You take one wrong in the morning, one wrong in the afternoon, and you're really sick. 
It could be you grabbed one of your um, pill bottles in the morning and you had some water on it for brushing your teeth, got the decimal point wrong, ended up going back to the pharmacy, getting it refilled, didn't see the decimal point move, like, and then you get sick. Um, there are thousands and millions of variables that impact why there are medication errors. My point is the other side of the cost here. Okay. There's issue with the wrong drugs sometimes. Because pharmacists are people too. And if you don't think pharmacists are overworked and burnt out, then you're kidding. And that the high quotas that pharmacists are put underneath foster increased errors. The most common error involving medications was related to an improper dose of it, which accounted for 41% of fatal medication errors. I would like to see more research in that. I'd like to know if overdoses are included in it. How many of those were purposeful or, or taken with intent? Giving the wrong drug and using the wrong route of administration accounted for another 16%. And over half of fatal medication errors happened in people over 60. Which means that people of that generation, older people, are at greater risk for medication errors because they take more. Well, the country is experiencing a baby boomer bulge. Right? There's supposed to be almost 40 million Americans entering this age group. Well, naturally, the number of fatal medication errors are going to increase. The number of people going bankrupt and suffering under the debt load of medication errors from cancer treatments or critical illness treatments is going to increase. Yet there's no discussion about it, about the impact here in our nation's leadership. It's as if the people who are making the meds just skipped out on the reform meetings. They seem to skip out on national media. I'm locked into that system. I need the meds. For those of you that are preppers, you know, you can stack food and you can stack water and, and you can have your weapons. My family's only as good as the meds that we have. Everything falls apart in the world and there's an anarchy. I can't get our meds. My son's medications, my medications. And I'm healthy now. My son is healthy now. I need health insurance because of the cost of medication. There's something inherently wrong with that system. Seriously. And medication errors aren't always someone else's fault. For me, <laughs> I was experiencing medication error every day for about 13 years. When I got sick, there was so much going on. Um, my son's transplant, my grandmother dying in college and work and da da da, da um, that I forgot the doctors telling me, take the medicine by itself. Wait a half hour before you do anything else. So I became religious with taking my medicine every morning. But I would take it with my vitamins and my stomach meds and da 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 da, da and didn't really think I was having any problems. Well, it wasn't until about a year and a half ago that I happened to read a meme in one of the groups that I follow on Instagram, and they are 
cancer survivors, thyroid cancer survivors, and they're talking about how they take their meds a half hour before doing anything. So I started. <laughs> and it was a game changer because it started to regulate everything else in my body from testosterone to my hair to um, the way I just, it was making me feel young and less hormonal. It was just, it was fantastic. And all it was, was that I wasn't paying attention. And I don't think any of you would argue that I have, I had plenty of reasons to not pay attention. My point is, is that a lot of times the medication area is still patient's responsibility. Right? You have to know what you're putting in your body. You have to ask your nurses. You have to ask your doctors. You have to ask your pharmacist. You have to empower yourself to know. Okay. Um, the medicine is tricky. I want to switch the discussion now from the financial cost to uh, move a little bit more towards the physical and mental cost of taking medication. Okay. And I want to lean it into how the medication affects the body. For me, the medication was a hormone replacement. It wasn't sort of the emotional hormone, so to speak, but it was all of the hormone, the hormones that was, that are needed to, stimulate other things in my body, cell growth, temperature moderation, processing energy, my stomach, my memory, my sleep patterns. So my medication became sort of my, it was like my crack, right? I wouldn't go anywhere without it and I wouldn't do anything without taking it. And when I don't take it, I know it. No matter what I do, my life revolves around making sure that my medicine is on point. Can't just quit a job and go start a business. I need insurance. Even if the medicine was cheap, without the insurance, I can't go to the doctor. Without the doctor, I can't get a script. And even if I could pay for the doctor... And this is, I, I'm able to afford these things, but the dynamic is that if you can pay for the doctor, then that's great. Every year you're going to have lab work. And if you can't pay for the lab work, then you can't get your meds. <laughs> that's where it's at. And this is for critical illness or cancer. And it's not just meds, you know, when it comes to treatments, right? It can be intravenous bags. It can be um, chuck pads. It can be Band-Aids and saline and all these other things. The return on investment, the cost approach that is used to come up with the prices for medication is... Um, is extreme. And you can see when hospitals are getting clobbered over the head for, um, you know, some Tylenol, a Tylenol dose of two for $400 or um, an intravenous bag, you know, for $6,000. Um, the numbers become staggering. And this is a, this is a, a national cultural change that has to happen. Part of what's needed to make the Affordable Care Act work. People need to care more about the medicine they take, about who's making it, about who's dispersing it, about who regulates the cost of it. You know, and we really don't know the true nature of the medical errors because the system measures itself and um you know it's reported errors right so um the system sort of set up to not encourage that report 
especially if you're a magnet facility or um, if you're a pharmacy. You know, it's, it takes a unique atmosphere for people to be altruistic and say, you know, I made a mistake today and it cost the life of someone. And there was a study done at the CDC. I'll read it to you. Or at least a, a brief synopsis of it. Okay. And it, it, it supports that the system is more to blame than the individuals. The author's name is McCary. And it goes on, the U.S. patient care study, which was released in 2016, explored death rate data for eight consecutive years. The researchers discovered that based on a total of 35 million hospitalizations, there was a pooled incidence rate of 250,000 deaths per year or about 10% of all deaths that stem from medical error, okay? The point is, is that's reported, and that's a huge number. In one year, it is a system that is designed to make money, and it surrounds a another system of medicine that is a practice. And you have to rely on it as a cancer patient for years after. Because there's late effects. The immediate effects, of course, with the medicine and the cancer treatments, difficulty working with physical and emotional stuff. There's changes in relationships, friends, coworkers, loved ones. Medication made me hormonal. Other people, it makes them nauseous. Other people, it makes personality changes. Then you start questioning how you're acting, which impacts self-esteem. The difficulties getting health and life insurance after. Trying to communicate your concerns to other people while they're freaked, freaked out about the word cancer. Oh, my God, I'm going to die. You're going to die. Please don't. Months and months and months after treatment's completed, you can have some unexplained symptoms and problems. And this is where communication is important. This is where understanding what the medication does is important. Your oncology team should take a comprehensive approach to you. Whoever is treating your critical illness should have a comp comprehensive organic look at your health and should include what's going to happen after you've been treated. Now, if you have the type of cancer that comes back a lot, then you're going to have to frequent the doctor anyways. But it can be difficult. You're going to deal with fatigue. The medicine's going to make you tired. Some of the medicine is going to ruin your sleep. Some of the medicine is going to give you aches and pains. <laughs> it's tricky. And it's hard to, you know, maybe some of the reason that there's not a total unified voice on medication is because so many meds impact so many people differently, right? Because um, a lot of how you feel depends on the kinds of meds that you use. And depending on where you're at in your life and your environment, how those meds impact you is, is very different than how it impacts someone else. And this is where it gets tricky, right? Because um, some medicine can impact you in a way that is just totally emotional. Some's going to impact you in a way that could uh, damage organs and hurt you more um, physically. You know, some of it's just going to not even impact you in a way that's physically or mentally. It's going to impact you. Um, you're going to be so tired that it starts to mess with how you make your decisions at the very fundamental of the fundamentals of your decision-making process, 
you're so tired you can't focus. In the chemotherapy world, they call that chemo brain. Muscle weakness, heart problems, all from the medication you're trying to take to kill the cancer. <laughs> and we're not even discussing, and I'm not going to get into the real depth of the discussion about the medicine causing secondary cancers themselves. Or what happens when you get numbness and tingling in your hands? And the ripple effect that that has on your life and your ability to touch. The bone and joint problems. I mentioned reduced lung capacity a second ago, I think. Think about the reduced lung capacity, right? That you can't take the same amount of deep breaths every minute that you used to. And then think about how that influences everything that you do. How you sleep, how you eat, how you walk, run, exercise, everything. All the things you need to heal more efficiently are now taken taken away from you because of what's needed to treat the cancer. The thyroid radiation blasts my body. People couldn't be within 10 feet of me for 10 seconds. (laughs) Whatever it did to my body. Whatever it's going to do to my body, I would prefer that over missing out on the past decade of magic. That's not the same for everyone else. But think about the impact of now, for women, it's early menopause. There's heart problems. So you have the numbness and tingling. Kidney and urinary issues. Now you're peeing all the time. Muscle weakness. When, I, when we talk about being tired, it's not in fatigue. It's not just the tired and fatigue like, oh, you know, um, I'm yawning and need a nap. This is the inability to rest. This means that you can sleep for 10 hours, wake up, and not have felt like you rested at all. Because the very cell of your body is at war. It never gets a chance to rest. In the original episode of this series, I talked about fear and how the fear gets your sympathetic nervous system to drive epinephrine, which costs you your sleep. Then you've got all these other things happening. You're peeing a lot. You can't breathe. Women get the early menopause, secondary cancers, muscle weaknesses. Remember I said I was so tired I couldn't chew through a peanut butter and jelly sandwich without my jaw cramping, my hands cramping up. I couldn't take a 20-minute drive. I'd have to pull over and go to sleep, have somebody come get me. Real tired. Not just, man, I'm burnt out time. I'm, I'm this real shit. And that influences the social side of your life. Because nobody wants to hang out that way. You don't want to go anywhere that way. You don't want people over then. Although you need to go out that way and you need to have people over then. So... Some physical stuff, that's going to influence your life. I'm going to move the discussion now to how the medication and the impact on medication, the impact on cancer treatments influence or treatments for critical illness influence your relationships, specifically intimacy and touch. We spoke in a previous episode about body dysmorphia. Your self-image is key to the success in your life. If you feel like you don't look good, if you feel, don't feel good, you're not le- gonna you're not likely going to want to engage in things that support that. Medication and all of the things that it does to you, we just spoke about. 
Okay, and these are considered late surgery, late effects of cancer and surgery. There's scarring, could be problems fighting infection. The can the medication or the surgery can make your feet swell. You can get lymphedema, real fat fingers. You're gonna to want to touch somebody or hug somebody when you're feeling that way. Changes in sexual function, fertility. You can't listen to the radio without hearing some commercial about some kind of sexually, um, about some medication that impacts fertility and sexual function. It's everywhere. There can be cognitive problems. We've spoken in previous podcasts about cognitive dissonance. But this one's more specific about focus, memory loss. The problem with losing your memory is that if you lose your memory, you lose connection to who you are. And if you lose connection to who you are, you lose sight of your why, of your purpose. And if you lose sight of your why and your purpose, then it's really difficult to get out of bed or deal with all of the other shit that's coming. All of the emotional after effects. And then you're in a relationship. From the cancer patient side, you're in a relationship with somebody that's hopefully supportive. But they have sexual needs too. Some of you give a shit to try to help. Some of you don't. Some of you can. Some of you can't. Some of you will. Some of you won't. Has a huge impact on your partner. Because believe it or not, they love you for who you are. They went through it with you. They knew the scar was there. They could see the scar. Intimacy isn't a bad thing. It's actually really healthy and produces all the chemicals and hormones you need to get healthy. The problem is who wants to have sex or kiss or hug or snuggle when they're peeing themselves and have pain in their bones and and rashes and radiation burns and hairs falling out and cool caps to keep the hair falling out and and chuck pads on the bed like who wants that not many people and the problem is that when you have to experience going through that it's like it's like a, it's like a tar that stays on you you can't just go back into bed with it wiped off it takes a while to work through. These medications change things at your core. These treatments change things at a cellular level. Nothing at a cellular level happens overnight. Although these medicines and treatments can get you sick right away, the true change takes time. Take a drink of water. Please, excuse me. I hope you guys are having a good day. Um, I'm not finished yet. I hope uh, that you guys are staying grateful and listening to what I have to say. If you have any questions, any arguments, feel free, bring it. Um, this is about having an impact. You know, the company is called Fostering a Dynamic Impact for a reason. The It's Nagelbush podcast is here. So you have discussions from this podcast with other people. It's legitimately about spreading the word. The more discussion, the greater the impact. The greater the impact, the greater the change. Right? So we've talked about medication, treatment for a critical illness and cancer in terms of cost, development, test, disperse, patients, cost of errors, cost on family, physical, mental, on the body, physiological, psychological, not being able to trust where your why is at, not being able to trust your own emotions leaves an emptiness in your decision-making process. Something that most of us rarely even think about. I mean, nobody thinks about how they think. And obviously not nobody. But it's not common for you to walk around and guess the process of how you make every decision. But if you get scared of something or something impacts you in a way that's really traumatizing, it influences your decision-making process from like behind the corner, that voice in your head. It like hides behind 
the corner of your brain and screams at that voice and scares it. And that's part of the PTSD of it. But once you identify it, once you say to yourself, all right, I see it, I know it's there, then, then you can start to control it. I know you have a voice in your head you talk to. You can control it. Tell it to stop bitching, stop being scared. I know I got fat hands. I know I don't feel good, but I want a hug. I want a kiss. I want to feel sexy. I want to be in the sun. There's some medication that takes the ability to go out in the sun from people. And they might look totally healthy, but they can't be in the sun for too long. Otherwise, they get burned. Yet we celebrate the cancer survival because they look fine. Yet the actual disease residue of fear and PTSD and the medication and the cost stay with us forever. You know, they linger months, years. These medications, these treatments can make the things that we consider normal in our lives, we consider part of our success pie, right? Um, that makes them go away and changes them. Sex and intimacy are a part of our life. Most men see that as a role of success in their world. Women see it as a connection. Not that there's a difference there, just a different perspective. Neither one matters because cancer impacts men in ways that makes them hormonal, makes them not be able to function, takes their dignity away through treatment. You think guys who go through prostate cancer enjoy that? Needing somebody else to wipe their ass. Women, too, on the other side of that. And even if we, some women are going through certain kinds of cancer, don't have the emotional inability to have sex. They don't have the capacity to have sex because of vaginal dryness. The sex is painful. And as a partner, if you're not understanding of that, You have to check. You have to be empathetic and see, look at how it's going to make her feel if you keep pushing then. You see what I did there? Uh, double on trying pushing in. <laughs> but part of being in a successful relationship is not being an asshole. And not being an asshole is easy. All you have to do is be open, empathetic. Think about how they're feeling. How would you feel fucked up like that? Now, the way cancer is treated today is not going to be the way cancer is treated later. That goes the same for critical illness, right? Advancements in technology are increasing our capacity to live longer, healthier lives. The research on cancer is no different. Cambridge has found antibodies against specific drug targets. They're finding certain cells that are druggable, that treat different kinds of cancer. The technology it needed to give me a type of radiation that impacts only thyroid tissue in my body. And then the impact of technology on medication Overall, right? Like um, transplant patients right now take medications so that they are so so that their immune immune system doesn't attack the liver. They're called anti-rejection meds. If you had an organ in your body made of your own stem cells, which there are facilities in the country right now that are doing research on that, then you wouldn't need the medication. 
And that's where technology helps the industry, right? Because we won't need it anymore. But there's also a strange culture behind similar stuff and advances in medicine. They do kidney transplants often and often and often and often and often, right? Obviously, as, mo as often as they can find them. 20 people a day added to the list, people waiting for organs. 20 people die. It's 120,000 or so in uh, waiting. Average person on dialysis waiting for a kidney transplant, about 20 years. That's how long they can survive on that. I think it's about five years for a to wait for an organ if you're a match if they even list you and the average cost of that dialysis over the course of a patient's lifetime is about 1.2 million dollars with all the other medications that have to go in that to sustain the body where the kidney transplant itself is 200 thousand i'm not a mathematician but i'm going to call bullshit on that and the bullshit is, how come there isn't more national and global attention put forth on that? Because it saves lives and impacts the healthcare spectrum across the board. With a new perspective in our nation's leadership, there's new research on cannabis and cannabinoids. And how that's impacting patients' lives. I used cannabis and CBD when I had my radiation treatment. Doctors told me, make sure, the nuclear physicians told me, make sure you don't drink alcohol, make sure you don't smoke, make sure you don't do all of these other things and never once told me not to smoke. What they did tell me was, is that after you take that radiation, if you throw up, you have to start over. <laughs> And you have to get the radiation out of your body through sweat, pee, and spit because it comes out through my pores. Like, what? And you can drink enough water to make yourself sick. So then what? I had a friend of mine make me some brownies, brought him to the room that I was in. You had to slide them under this uh, little window. Like, it's like a prison for three days. And um, I ate the brownies. It made it so I didn't get sick. And I, I mean, it, it helped me. I didn't get sick. But that's considered illegal. Soon it won't. There is um, a significant amount of research now about the impact of CBD in the actual treatment of cancer and you know and how these CBD cells influence the cancer growth the cancer remission as well as treatment. The THC has become a way to also manage and mediate some of the impact of the medication you need to survive after cancer. Yet it's been illegal because of some bureaucratic shit 50 years ago. And won't change still because of bureaucratic shit tied up in finances, highly influenced by a tobacco industry and a pharmaceutical industry. I'm not telling you you should go out and get high. Although if you are fighting cancer, you certainly need to look into it. But right now, the DEA considered it, considers it a Schedule One controlled substance. But you can get something called Duranabol, 
and that is the D, the FDA's version of THC. And I think Nabalone is the other one. Um, the research is there. It's just got to penetrate a healthcare system that is used to doing its own thing. But it's part of a, it's, I bring it up specifically because it's an example of the cultural change in how medicine is approached in the country. We are looking at a more holistic approach because of the significant costs. Hopefully, the high debt and tremendous impact from the cost of medication and treatment of these illnesses and diseases, hopefully it'll foster enough innovation and enough new strategies that there becomes a national policy on managing the impact of the cost of medication more effectively. Getting sick should not be financially traumatic for any person. As a society, we have um, we are better than that. We don't always demonstrate it, but our responsibility to take care of those that are the most vulnerable is real. And if you don't think that, then I'd argue you're a dick. Because if you're grateful, then you're going to want to take care of others. You're going to want to be kind. And part of being kind as a nation means that people who are sick shouldn't have to suffer because they're sick. I'm going to leave it on that. Professionally, I'm a life coach and motivational speaker. I'm a neuromuscular therapist and a teacher. I am doing these podcasts to spread the word and have an impact. If you think that I can help you formulate a strategy to get through some of the chaos that you're dealing with, send me a message, fatimpact at gmail.com. Donate life 8703 at gmail.com and see me about creating a strategy for you to help you get through a troubling time where you're managing an illness. From an organizational perspective, you want to create a strategy that's going to help and support your employees during times of illness. You have a group of staff that are of the age that are going to be most impacted by people who are getting by illness. You want a better culture to support that? You want to be a little more altruistic? You want to spread a little culture, a little corporate response, social responsibility? You should see me. Other than that, I wish you a fantastic day. Be grateful. Share this thing for me. I need your support. Sh subscribe. Click the download. Do the automatic download. Spread it, share it. Yo, listen, my boy's got this. He said this. Somebody you know fighting cancer. I would greatly appreciate that. Have a good night. Stay grateful. And I'll talk to you soon.